hard-hitting medical truth, cutting through conflict and confusion to the understanding you're searching for. Join Dr. Peter McCullough, world-renowned medical expert and practicing physician for this edition of the McCullough Report. Your life may depend on it. Get real, let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is a McCullough Report, and I'm Dr. Peter McCullough. I'm going to leave the entire time this week for a special interview, The Odyssey, the story of Dr. Brad Meyer, a military man, a doctor, a father, a husband, and what's happened to Brad through the course of the pandemic. You are going to love this interview. I'm going to leave all the time for it on uh, the front side and the back side of The McCullough Report. Let's get real. Let's get loud. On America Out Loud Talk Radio, this is a McCullough Report. It's an honor to bring to the other side of the microphone for the first time, Dr. Bradley Meyer, Brad Meyer. Uh, Dr. Meyer went to the University of Iowa undergraduate, and that's the Iowa Hawkeyes. You know that team. They're in the Big Ten. Many of you know I went to graduate school at University of Michigan. They're also in the Big Ten. And from there, he went to medical school uh, at uh, Des Moines University, that's an osteopathic medical school, very highly regarded, uh, and got his medical degree. And then he went on to there to the uh, a, a combined um, uh, residency in family medicine, but also has connections to the military, he'll explain, at the University of Nebraska Medical Center in Omaha, which is a huge medical center. I've been there myself. Uh, he uh, uh, was the chief of family medicine at the Moody Air Force Base in Valdosta, Florida, and he'll explain how he got there. And then he's going to tell us about his sojourn, his tour in the Middle East, returning, practicing as a family medicine, COVID, and so much more. Brad, welcome to the McCullough Report. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. McCullough. Honored to be here. Well, tell us about your residency. Uh, how did that happen where it was a combined civilian military residency? Right. Uh, I I owe that to my uncle Kip. He's a he was a former F sixteen pilot, and he always loved the uh, the flight docs that he worked with. He and his family worked with. So he's like Brad. You know, medical school's expensive, and uh, you really ought to look into the military. And he had a sweet spot in his heart for the Air Force. And uh, so I applied uh, when I was in. Uh, uh, medical school, actually. Um, and uh, it was a, a three-year uh, scholarship that I received. And uh, so they uh, they paid for three of my four years of medical school. And that uh, brought me to the University of Nebraska Med Center, where I was off at Air Force Base in Bellevue and Omaha, Nebraska. And so I, I went back and forth between the Air Force Base, seeing folks at the hospital uh, at uh, Bellevue and south of Omaha and to the big med center downtown uh, Omaha. And so uh, the way the military uh, payback works, uh, I, I went and got my commissioned officer training down in uh, Alabama when I was in medical school. And uh, that was during a summer. And uh, then it's a one-for-one -one payback. So uh, after residency, I had... Uh, three years of payback. And uh, I, uh, there was a choice, uh, you know, I really wanted to go to Europe. And, uh, and there was a place called Valdosta, there's the Valdosta mountain ranges, and just outside of, of um, uh, northern Italy there, 
And, uh, uh, yeah, I was, we were thinking, oh my goodness, this is the place we want to be, but I, I didn't know enough high ranking generals to pull those strings. But it, the ir- irony is that, that, um, I was able to get to Valdosta anyway, instead of the Valdosta mountain range in, in Italy, we ended up in Valdosta, Valdosta, Georgia, so, so, Southern Georgia, um, and South Central Georgia, Moody Air Force Base, where, um, I was there for three years and led the, the clinic, the family medicine department there. And, uh, from there, uh, was, uh, called to deploy over, uh, to, uh, what was then the, the Afghanistan war still going on, but I, I ended up going to a lily pad um, in uh, the Saudi Peninsula, Peninsula right next to Oman. So I was there for about six months as a one of two. Essentially, I was an ER doc there, um, one of two docs there, um, alternating, uh, caring for both the military civilians over the course of that six month period. So and what's a lily pad? Um, a lily pad is, um, well, we didn't have a status of forces agreement with that, uh, the country we were in, uh, which was Oman at the time. And so the lily pad, they were uh, producing MRAPs over, uh, which which are armored vehicles to uh, divert the blast of uh, IEDs. Uh, and uh, so the place that they would ship them to was was this lily pad. It was considered a, a, a kind of a middle ground. And then from there, they would make that last leg over to Afghanistan in these big Air Force jets. So a lily pad is kind of like a, like a military base, but it's not an official base. Is that right? Cor- correct. Correct. It's kind of, yeah, we, we, were, we were there, but not there. And how many people are on a lily pad? Well, I was in like about a mile by mile area. And I I bet we had about two two to three thousand U.S. troops there. Wow. And then on a typical base, uh, military base outside the United States, how, how many people are on base? Well, uh, it really depended on, you know, you're, you, you could, it many times they're big, big cities to small towns. Like, give me an so, example of a big one. What's a big ex us military base? Well, you, we're talking, you know, four to 5,000 would, would I'm, when I'm talking in Afghanistan in particular, um, uh, some of the bigger some of the bigger bases were yeah they they were four to five thousand right in that range and did your wife and family come with you or a single guy then or nope I left my newborn son behind and uh and my wife uh they stayed back in Valdosta and and uh I maintained contact with them through uh through the internet and phone calls every so and again so but uh yeah it was I it was quite a interesting experience. I, 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 I always kind of pinch myself when I go visit my family in Southwest part of the country in Arizona, because I, I told myself I'd never go back to the desert again. And, uh, when I, when I flew in there, they flew me in, in a jet, there was two, two, um, two pilots. And I was the one physician that was going in. And I just, it felt like a scene out of star Wars where I looked out in, and they dropped, dropped off a French general in Ayadid and which is in the Saudi peninsula. And here, here I am on this last leg with two, two 
two pilots and all I can see is sand forever. And I'm like, you're really going to drop me off here for six months. And, uh, and so, yeah, it was, that's, I was in the sandbox. That's why they call it the sandbox. Wow. And what type of uh, injuries did you see or what type of cases do you see on a daily basis? Yeah, you know, it was more of an urgent care, anything that, uh, uh, so sick care, acute care, um, some basic orthopedic injuries. I mean, we occasionally we would see something like somebody's finger would be degloved, they call it, where the, the tissue is pulled off from the bone. Um, but most of those cases, we just would stabilize the patient and then we would get them off to a bigger tertiary center, a bigger hospital, which a lot of times was either sending them to Germany or it'd be sending them to a bigger uh, facility in Afghanistan, actually. Okay. So that'd be Landsteiner in Germany or? Yeah, I can't remember exactly. I don't, I'm not mm -hmm. sure which one it was. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, through that time in the military, do you, do you think you learned more on the job there additionally than what you had already learned in your family practice residency? Well, it was, it was, it stretched me. I mean, more as a, just, uh, from a worldview perspective, um, it was, uh, all right, what, what is this? this big um, political morass and apparatus and this war apparatus that, that we're involved with. And, and, you know, one of the things that shocked me, and this was the changing kind of in the feel in the military at that time, it was, it was 2011 and there things we, we literally were in the middle of a war zone and we had the JAGs, which is the, the attorneys, come out and give us education on um, bathroom policies um, and, you know, how you identify sexually and which bathroom you would go to while you were in the military. Um, oh, in a deployed on. Really? When was I'm this? Dead. What year was this, Brad? I think it was 2010-11. Yeah. Really? Are you saying the military was going woke back then? Oh, without a doubt. Wow. I, and, and <laughs> I, that's why I told my, my, the friends that I had over there uh, on this deployment, I'm like, God, guys, you know, I just can't see making a career out of this because if we're supposed to be over here handling our business, you know, in wartime and we're worrying about gender and, you know, what bathroom we're supposed to go into that, that, that wasn't adding up for me. So I'm like, wow, if, if that's, if those are the folks making decisions, um, at the top, uh, that's not a not a group that I really feel like I want to be a long term, you know, relationship. Did, partnership. Did, they, did they ever have any education uh, for you on the sexual harassment? Uh, do they have like the lawyers come in? And oh, my goodness. That? Yes. I mean, it was it. We it, it it's. And I thought I was going to escape this getting into the civilian sector. I was like, oh, my goodness, I can't wait to leave this in the military because it's going to get better in the civilian sector. Right. No. Um, but that was yeah, we had all kinds of training. It was, the you know, the computer based training on all kinds of sexual harassment. And these are things that you'd have to be up on even in a deployed setting. You know, again, things that seemed a little bit esoteric and a little bit, you know, not at the high priority list when you're in a, in a wartime setting. It was about that time. I can remember uh, the initiation of sexual harassment training um, that we had um, in cardiology. Now cardiology is a very male dominated field. 
I think primarily because it's just so rigorous, the radiation exposure in the cath lab, getting up in the middle of the night. I think it's something like 90% men, 10% women. But there was this mandatory uh, training on sexual harassment. And they had this uh, woman came in. She was an attorney, a female. And and she came in and just, um, I just felt like she eviscerated the the men in the room and uh, said basically just anything we possibly could do would be interpreted as sexual harassment. And um, and uh, basically what we were told at that time, uh, especially there's young doctors, there's young you know men doctors and female nurses and things. She basically said, listen, any type of dating between a doctor and nurse is out. Um, any type of any mention of just anything, anything is out. And I never forget our chief of cardiology, a friend of mine, he said, well, you know, a lot of us are married to nurses. We, you know, they're pretty good relationships. And, and, and uh, everyone looked around, everyone kind of nodded. She goes, she goes, listen, she says, if you want to go date somebody, go find a hairdresser or something. She really just told right. us that uh, the world had changed, that it's a one-way street. And one thing I learned about um, sexual harassment, though, is she said, it's all about power dynamic. Mm-hmm. And so one of the... Um, interesting things is so it's a 100% hit rate if a if a, a male physician says or does anything just just anything is could be nailed there's there's no safe harbor but somebody asked an interesting question he goes well what if there's a a man and a woman and, and they're in environmental services and um, a man says something to a woman that um, she doesn't like or um, and uh, and she files a complaint and then, you know what the, the lawyer said? She goes, well, that's not sexual harassment. And we said, wait a minute. He, 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 he said something lewd to her. She goes, there's no power dynamic. She goes, they're, they're equal. You know, if there's, if, there's, if there's no power dynamic, then uh, there's no sexual harassment. I thought that was so interesting. That, that, and, and so she said that they pretty much spend their entire time. She said that it was roughly 90% male um, uh male uh, perpetrators, 10% female. <clears throat> and it's it's largely just male executives and male physicians. And they just simply don't bother with people uh, farther down on the organizational chart. And uh, she said that's true in all organizations, that it's all about the power dynamic. I thought well, that was very interesting that that um, th- th- that it, it, it's it's not just sexual harassment. It actually has to do with status. That status is a big part of the pursuit of sexual harassment. Well, it, it, it's that way. I mean, the race dynamics as well. Um, you know, in 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 a deployed setting, it that was the experience that I noted as well. It's it's it was it was the political power uh, structure. So if if you know, and and if it it's the low hanging fruit uh, and. People within the military, you you know this. You know that if you are in a situation where you're, you know, you may have stepped out of bounds or, or have done something that is, you know, outside of the military code of conduct, that you still can fall back on this political power um, dynamic and and utilize it to your benefit. Whether or not that was affairs that would occur, you know, this is the other thing when you deploy, you've got men and women, many of them that are married away from their spouses in 
these settings where they're together and then also, you know, race dynamics. And, and so those are things that I, I, you know, witnessed because I saw those patients that would come in, um, into the family practice, family, uh, urgent care clinic setting. And, and it it was real and it, and it was completely, um, (laughs) in some ways it felt like Jerry Springer. Mm. Well, listen, let me ask you this then in the military, if there was a single man and a single woman, and let's say the man was uh, slightly higher ranked than a woman, uh, I, I, you know, I don't know the military rankings, but I know that the military loves these different rankings, all these different, st- uh, you know, levels. Right. And 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 they decided they wanted to date, and it was it was mutual. Uh, would that be allowed, or is that out of bounds? Well, if you are an uh, an officer or a non commissioned officer. Those those would be the out of bounds. So if you are uh, so a commissioned officer is somebody that has got their college degree, um, and a non commissioned officer would be somebody that had a um, high school diploma essentially, mm-hmm. and so that was considered fraternization if those two would get together and okay. grounds for this missile. So it's the same thing that doctor right. and a nurse now is out of bounds. Previously it was fine. Uh, 20 years ago, but it's not now. And then the same thing in the military. Wow, that's an interesting observation. It's just, it's yeah. the way the world has changed. And, um, uh, you know, I guess it is what it is, uh, but interesting observation. So take us from there. You you finish your, um, your military service and then you return to the States. Right. I, I flew into uh, Germany and saw all the green and got back home and could drive again after being uh, in this uh, one mile by one mile <laughs> radius for six months and not complaining, but it just makes you appreciate the the freedoms and the, the latitude that you have to, to, you know, have that personal sovereignty. So yeah, I came back and, and made the decision that I was not going to stay in the military at that point um, for a multitude of reasons. I'd, done my my payback time and uh you know unbeknownst to me i was thinking you know yeah i'd be getting out of the frying pan and into a a little nicer setting um but in many ways it was into the fire into the civilian sector i returned back to my home state of iowa my wife's family was in des moines and so i joined a, a big corporate hospital uh group there called it was unity point uh eventually and uh, I practiced medicine there for about about seven years, and I got to experience the the dramatic change through Obamacare into um, when we started to do quality measures to determine to measure, you know, quality of care, quote unquote, quality of care, and 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 so I, what I found was that the terms were being dictated more and more um, to the to the family physicians and doctors in general, as time went on, I was, I was spending more time on, on the computer doing electronic medical record recording. And I, I would spend as, as much as half of my time on the computer recording what the payers or the insurance said was important, or my corporate um, employer said was needed. And and I, it was, I felt like sand slipping through my my hands of wow is this going to be what medicine's going to be for me the you know the next 20 or 30 years and 
you know, I, I saw it quickly going towards a seven to 10 minute patient visit and uh, a partner that I worked with, uh, he was an old school family doc in just outside of Des Moines, Dr. Vermillion. He, he always talked to me about, Brad, your mission here, we're, we're, we're working with souls. This is soul care and don't ever forget that. And, and so we can try to put medicine into a box. We can start to say, all right, we're going to have all these protocols and algorithms. But he said, Brad, never forget you're dealing with a soul and you're dealing, and this is still an art. And, and so it's all combined into one and, and it got harder and harder to do that every year that went by um, once I got into the civilian sector. And so, you know, in, in fact, I was in, um, Maui at a conference with my family in 2018, and we saw the whales breach that day. And I asked my son, Grant, at the time, he would have been about eight years old, what the highlight of the day was. And it wasn't the whales breaching. It was it was the fact that I wasn't on my on my computer all day, ah. um, doing my records and my charts. So I'm like. All right. Talk to my wife. I said, we got to make a change and and let's see if we can. So we moved and went to Northwest Iowa and um, that was my hometown where I am now. And um, and I got to a place where it was a smaller town, a resort town with water, things, activities to do outside. Um, but this what used to be in this small town was a couple of small practices that were owned and run by the doctors, the private, private groups. Well, by the time I got there, you know, even though I was going to a beautiful place and, uh, you know, they call it the Hamptons of the Midwest here in Okaboji, um, people from all over the country come here and nobody would think coming to Iowa to vacation is, but yes, it's true. Um, but we had a corporate takeover of the hospital and, and the clinics. And that happened several years before I got to the area. And, um, and so, yeah, I changed the setting, uh, with hopes that things would be a little bit different, but again, uh, more of the same with regard to the corporate control over doctors. And not only does that mean over control, the doctors that's over, the patients as well, because the patients aren't getting the getting the full uh, range of options available to them because their doctors are having their practice style dictated to them. And hence, the visit with the with the patient is completely different. So hey, that's Brad, Brad, did you ever have any meetings during this time with hospital administrators and they kind of let you know who's in charge, that it was really the hospital administrator, not the doctor who was in charge. Do you ever get that kind of uh, vibe? No, not until COVID hit. Um, when I, when I came there, actually to their credit, you know, it was a Catholic organization out of Sioux Falls, um, this corporation, but I asked if I could pray with my patients and, and I asked them if, you know, I, I some of my concerns just about autonomy to practice the way that I, and the patients that I, that were, you know, in, I was in charge of their care that that we saw fit together, and they they absolutely said yes, absolutely, we value that. That's that's you know, you will have that full latitude to to practice your practice style if that means seeing less patients in a day. Um, that's okay with us as long as you are 
you know, practicing the way that you see fit. So to their credit, that's, that's, that's what I got out of the shoot um, when I was employed there. And, uh, but COVID uh, changed that quickly. And it seemed like that put the pressure on hospitals everywhere, including this hospital in Northwest Iowa. Hmm. And so when COVID-19 hit, um, tell us about your early experiences with treatment and what happened, especially in the hospital. I thought that was a compelling part of your, of your right. Journey. Yeah, no, I, uh, so that I, I did both inpatient and outpatient. So, uh, in a small town, a lot of times family docs are still doing the full scope. My, my other colleagues were still delivering babies. I had stopped doing that, but, uh, uh, if my patients got sick enough in the ho- in in the clinic that they they needed to be hospitalized, then I would see them in the hospital for their care. So that's that's kind of the scenario. The hospital is attached to the clinic, and um, uh, during COVID, uh, we uh, like everybody, you know, had the the fear factor, and uh, we we prepared. It felt like a very military tile style setting. We were doing all these operations to determine protocols and all right, what, what, what are we going to do in this situation, that situation? And, you know, we're partitioning off parts of the hallways in the hospital, you know, into like almost like negative pressure areas. And it was, it was wild. It was, it was almost like a scene out of like, uh, there was a movie out years ago about Ebola but it, it was it was kind of crazy, and we were, we're ramping up getting ventilators in. Where could we find extra ventilators? Um, but uh, right out of the shoot, you know, every, we were all learning together across this country, across the world. How are we going to manage this? And we, like everybody else, we said, "All right, stay home, stay home, stay home." And to the point that folks were afraid and not encouraged to come to the family practice clinic and. In fact, many of my colleagues were so fearful of even seeing a patient in person, even a year down the road, that they would refuse to work those COVID clinics, which I thought was crazy. I'm like, you're a physician and, you know, this is what we do. Uh, so, uh, you know, I, I was never fearful of it. I, I went along with wearing the masks for maybe five to six weeks right out of the shoot until I could do my own research and and the same thing went along with with the COVID policies. Typically, right out of the shoot, I was um, hook, line, sinker, following what these recommendations were. Um, you know, as as far as protocols that were recommended from the NIH and the CDC. And um, I noticed that the patients with these protocols just they they seem to languish and not do better over time in the hospital. So I'm like, well, what can we do to keep them from getting into the hospital setting. And, and so I was curious what was happening around the world, around the country and ran into some of the stuff in Italy, France and, and China. And, and then with Dr. Zelenko, um, you know, his, his work with hydroxychloroquine. So I would say in June, I started of 2020, I started treating people, my own patients uh, with, hydroxychloroquine, the kitchen sink, as you like to call it, um, a lot of uh, vitamin supplements uh, and uh, doing steroids and uh, maybe azithromycin, doxycycline, a whole host of things. And I was having tremendous success with it. I got so excited 
that I, I wanted to share that from the mountaintop, not only with my colleagues that weren't doing it. I'm like, this is, I was thinking, this is incredible. <laughs> We're actually going to be able to uh, turn this around here locally with this early treatment based on what I'm seeing, you know, on a case by case basis, people after 24 to 48 hours on doc or on, on uh, hydroxychloroquine, which I, I used all the time when I was a, uh, Air Force physician, so I knew it was safe. <laughs> I just I prescribed that all the time when I was in the Air Force, and so I had no worries or qualms about prescribing it. Um, and uh, yeah, it was like a light switch. Twenty four to forty eight hours later, these could be some really old, debilitated folks that were pretty sick, severe headache, fever. You know, felt like a wet rag, flu, and and it was like magic. They 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 called me up. They're like, we're dramatically better, and. And so did it matter, David, did it matter when you started it? If you got an early start, did they have a more prompt response? Definitely. It was early. I, I, I was doing it early and it's, it's meaning within the first probably three to five days, even was a little far out. Um, So usually within the first three days of symptoms, I, I was trying to get them on, on board and, and that's when I found it the most effective. So, um, but yeah, I mean, as, 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 as the year rolled on, I went into the fall. I I started to see that other people were doing it, having success with it, and I started to utilize ivermectin, and uh, to the point where I actually, um, you know, again was using it outpatient in my clinic. But the problem was I was the only doc out of twelve doctors or eleven doctors that were doing it, so I was making my colleagues either you know they were not going along with this. And so their patients, because I was doing it, were coming to them to ask for it, and they weren't comfortable with that. So they wanted me to stop it, stop doing this outside the box, this you know off-label use stuff. And and but uh, I I even used it in the hospital, or I at least attempted to, um, and was blocked on several occasions, a couple occasions where I, I wrote the order for ivermectin in the hospital and got consent with uh, with with the patients and they were, you know, both of them unfortunately died. Uh, the, uh, one of the orders was blocked by the chief medical officer of the hospital. Um, and, uh, actually both of them, I believe were blocked, blocked, blocked by the chief medical officer. So, um, it's the first time that I'd ever had that experience for an off-label drug, which we use off-label treatments right. all the time yeah. in medicine. Let's drill down. Did that chief medical officer, was that doctor also treating COVID patients? Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Loud Talk Radio. This is a McCullough Report. Having trouble sleeping? I recommend Healthy Cell REM Sleep Supplement. It helps you get to sleep, have a deep sleep, and wake up the next day fully rested. Take every night consistently get better sleep habits for better performance during the day. Go to our America Out Loud talk radio website, click on the banner bar for Healthy Cell to get a discount off your purchase of Healthy Cell REM sleep supplement. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud talk radio. This is McCullough Report.
Trouble getting to sleep and staying asleep is infuriating. Your mind races, you toss and turn. Nutrition company Healthy Cell created REM sleep to help you quickly fall asleep, stay asleep, and sleep deep. Unlike other supplements that don't work, REM sleep is not a pill. It's a gel you swallow with ultra-absorption of science-backed ingredients, supporting all four stages of sleep. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Risk-free. Love it or your money back. Guaranteed. HealthyCell.com. Code out loud. Hello, I'm Ben Marble, MD, and I founded MyFreeDoctor.com as a donation-supported, faith-based nonprofit with a mission to save lives by delivering free doctor visits to patients in all 50 states of America. MyFreeDoctor.com treats a broad range of health concerns like COVID-19, long COVID, sinus infections, urinary tract infections, rashes, medication refills, and more. So please visit MyFreeDoctor.com, where we're healing America one person at a time. often ask me, Malcolm, how do we fight the corruption? Robert Frost has said it best, freedom lies in being bold. Well, for six incredible years, bold is America out loud. Welcome to the new era in communications, America Out Loud Talk Radio. We use off-label treatments right. all the time and in medicine. Let's drill down. Did that chief medical officer, was that doctor also treating COVID patients? No. Okay. So, so that doctor, that him or herself, had never used had never used uh, the drug as far as you know? Yeah, I, I, I don't believe so. I, in fact, that, that chief medical officer was calling the local pharmacy and telling them not to fill ivermectin prescriptions from doctors from our hospital or our clinics mm -hmm. that's how far that that chief medical officer went to prevent that type of treatment right you know it had, it's in my book um where around that time too i think it was march of 2020 um i had a big fda investigational drug application i was actually doing the hydroxychloroquine protocol so i was a doctor for like several hundred uh, healthcare workers. Now they weren't sick, but they were getting COVID. And um, one of them was older and she really got sick. And I said, God, I need to do more than hydroxychloroquine. And I prescribed some other drugs. And actually I got a call from the, um, the chief medical officer who's, you know, who's largely administrative, kind of a junior mm -hmm. doctor to me. And she's like really stern. You don't have any support for doing this. And she's almost kind of reprimanding me. I'm like, what? And mm -hmm. um I, that was the first time I realized that something is in the minds of people to actually hurt other people. Uh, what would have made her happy is if I didn't treat this patient and let this patient get uh, more ill. I think what have, would have made your um, chief doctor you dealt with happy is if you didn't treat the patient. Right. Right? It's the first time I've ever experienced it. That was the weirdest thing ever. Right. So, um, 100%. Yeah. It, it's, it, you know, it's the first, you know, informed consent and first do no harm and, and doing every, doing everything you can. And th this was like a wartime setting. I mean, this is essentially what, you know, my training in the military had prepared me for was to utilize all your resources, think outside the box, innovate. Um, and you know, this, have that discussion with the patient when they're being offered essentially nothing besides 
you know, IV fluids, oxygen, uh, maybe they get some steroids if they're lucky. Um, and most of them are getting slammed with remdesivir. Um, but to at least have that, the option for an off-label drug, drug, um, it's, uh, uh, it blew my mind that so many of my physician colleagues were willing to just accept that as a fact that that was out of bounds for us because the COVID board for my corporate institution was following the CDC guidelines and was not going to deviate from that. Um, despite the fact that Pierre Corey sent me all of the NIH data that he was going to be sending to the NIH about the effectiveness of ivermectin. I was so excited. He's like, Dr. Corey's like, Brad, just hold the, hold the line. He's like, this is a miracle drug. You're going to be proven right in the end. This was December of 21. And he's, he's like, just keep going. And so he's like, I'll tell you what, I'm going to send you all of this, all this data, all this research that I'm sending off to NIH. And, and I'm sure this in two to three months, this is all going to be in the rear view mirror because this this evidence for ivermectin is so overwhelming that that can't be anything but that. So he was, I'm like, awesome, great, because I'm seeing the application of how effective the ivermectin it is um, with my patients. I'm going to pass it off to the COVID board in Sioux Falls. Of course, they review it, and of course, they deny it, um, adding the ivermectin option, and and so then we're we're left. I was left with choice of which they, which they sat down with me and said, you know, the, you can either, I don't know if your, your, your practice and your style is compatible with this institution. Essentially, you need to think about that. And essentially, if you're going to continue to treat with ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine and give informed consent, or informed consent to patients about the COVID vaccine, which they didn't like me doing that either, um, that, because that was confusing the community. They told me you, you, you can't talk about this vaccine. Um, that, that you know, essentially it was the ultimatum for me. And so, but for a, probably for about four to six week period, I stopped prescribing, but I had more and more patients that were asking for it. And I knew how effective it was. And I knew I ethically couldn't continue to sleep at night if I know that there was a treatment and when patients get worse in that period of time where you didn't treat them, were they getting sicker? Oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And, and you so knew it. now, compared yeah. to these other doctors, you were using uh, Zelenko protocol or early FLCC or early McCullough protocol because we were all working separately at the time. Right. Um, were other doctors having better outcomes? Were they using different drugs and getting people even better than you? You know, at that time, I I was I was I was in my foxhole, and so um, I I didn't have um, until I went to the COVID summit in twenty twenty one a year ago. Now um, that that was really the first time I got to talk to a group of physicians to to compare notes and say, you know, what what's worked best for you, a doxycycline or azithromycin, um, but. I, I do know that um, it, it seemed to be that the more that you utilized the kitchen sink, as you like to call it, and I've borrowed that term frequently. That actually came um, from Joe Rogan, believe it or did not. It? Okay. Joe used yeah, the okay. kitchen sink. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, uh, you know, it's just, uh, it, I realized that 
you know, everybody is going to be a little bit different and, and um, that the more of these that we hit this from different angles and, and, and this was, this was created this, this entity, this COVID gain of function, COVID-19, this wasn't like your typical, you know, pathogen that was coming along here. So you know, the interesting part was so many patients that believed in this is typically the right answer. Give your body a chance to fight stuff. Give your body, you know, you know, supportive care, uh, hydration, rest. But in this case, it's like, no, <laughs> let's add prescriptions. Let's add a little of this, a little of that, a little vitamin, a little supplement, a little NAC, you know, nutraceutical. And um, and it, it felt strange to be hitting it from so many different angles when normally I'm telling for a virus, you know, go home and, and let your body handle it. But that's, that's what exactly what was so different about this, you know, 10 days in people, their lips are turning blue. They're coming into the, to the ER and, and the ER is like, all right, here's your protocols. Here's your remdesivir. And, and those protocols didn't include ivermectin or any of the above. So. So at that point in time, you basically looked at it. You went six weeks. Patients were getting worse. You had kind of confirmed your hypothesis that you were on the right track. Right. Had no comparative outcomes to look at. And then you had to make the tough decision, right? I mean, are you going right. to you're going to you're going to walk the line, or are you going to you're going to stick yeah. to your your ethical and your moral clinical values? What happened? Well, uh, my wife and I prayed, and we. Um, we said that, you know, God, do you want to use me in the grid, inside the system, inside kind of the belly of the, the beast, as I call it now, yeah. um, or cause we still need good people in that system, you know, cause, uh, but, or, or is my mission outside of that system? And, and, uh, it just so happened that I, innovated that weekend and was treating a person that I couldn't treat with I with ivermectin. I used IV and acetylcysteine effectively for this local gal that was heading to the ICU and oxygen saturations were getting worse. So I talked to a friend, colleague of mine, Dr. Fogarty out of North Dakota, and he'd used IV NAC frequently, you know, for contrast toxicity on imaging studies. It's used for uh, cystic fibrosis patients, uh, Tylenol overdoses. So, but it decreases mucus production in the lungs, increases glutathione levels. Glutathione is food for our mitochondria. A lot of times we're very uh, glutathione starved going through COVID. So we, we, we kind of snuck that one past the goal line. Um, I, I ordered IVNAC and she dramatically improved. Um, she, she was headed for the ICU and could have been worse beyond that three days later she is she was discharged from the hospital and now, what um, else did she get brad outside the, you gave iv and acetylcysteine that's that's it she got her oxygen her um got her steroids i i stopped her remdesivir um and her doc that i took over for that day was pretty upset with me her liver enzymes were climbing of course that was still the protocol and as soon as he got back on, because it was his patient and I was covering that day, um, to his credit, at least he kept the IV NAC going. He restarted the remdesivir. Um, but 
she dramatically improved. Oxygen saturations got better and she was discharged from the hospital two days later. And, and that was the day then that I went into the hospital to start my clinic morning and the night before my wife and I had prayed for direction and, and the, the suits from Sioux Falls were waiting for me and told me that I was uh, relieved of my duties immediately and terminated uh, without cause. And uh, so I was escorted out. I was hometown kid um, actually on the billboards in the community that week um, and several billboards advertising quality care provided by this institution and these doctors. And uh, so the irony was not lost there, but uh, I, I, yeah, I got my personal escort out in front of all of my colleagues and uh, haven't looked back. I'm, I'm very thankful. Um, I, 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 I could not have survived um, knowing what I knew um, inside the system because I would have been handcuffed. I, I wouldn't have been able to do. So, so your last patient there was a save. Correct. It was a major save. You innovated. You you were running out of kind of the pharmacopoeia real estate. You saved this lady's life. And then they walk you out. Almost right. to, it almost puts you in handcuffs, it sounds like. Right. Right. Jeez, Brad, this is an unbelievable story. This is a this is this is the type of thing you, you write books about. D- did the people right. walking you out, did they seem happy or did they feel like did they feel look like they were self justified in doing this, or people wouldn't look me in the eye, you know? Yeah. Um, and uh, I think that there was some embarrassment, um, and uh, not everybody knew what was going on, but uh, they certainly were setting an example for others that uh, you know don't uh, you know follow just just do what we say, you know. Uh, we're we're the employer, we're the boss. Um, you know, this is going to happen to you too. That, that was with what, I mean, if, if that can happen to the hometown kid that comes home on a billboard and as a military veteran, you know, um, that they're going to walk that person out. Um, that's, that's a, a pretty big example that they set there. Well, Brad, do you think some of that was choreography? Do you think they were trying to give a message to any of the other doctors that if they stepped out of line, Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in fact, you know, some of the doctors in the months prior, my colleagues, you know, they're they're like, Brad, what else am I going to do? Where else am I going to go? If I decide I'm not disagreeing with you that this ivermectin stuff or this, that, uh, that, that, this, this masking is BS, there's no evidence for it. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I had a couple conversations with a couple different doctor colleagues of mine and they were, but they're like, there's nowhere else to go. Uh, you know, it's like trying to set up, you know, you've, you've got these non-compete clauses in your contract mm-hmm. that you, you would have to completely move to a separate community. So they kind of, they've got these doctors and I'm not making excuses for the inaction of the doctors or my colleagues. I, I certainly can empathize, but when it still comes down to doing the right thing, um, I just like I told my patients, if it came down to getting the vac, the COVID vaccine or not, I said, I'd rather get, I'd rather, you know, be in a FEMA camp than get the vaccine. There's no, there's just no way I'm going to be, you're going to force me to do it. And, oh, and do I you would think, tell my, was that coming down the line where they were going to force the healthcare workers to take the vax? Oh yeah. I mean, it, that, and eventually that, that did after my exit, uh, it was, 
It was the the chief medical officer would come down the hallway and and show, you know HIPAA that was always such an important thing drilled into our brains that that the chief medical officer obviously missed that training because he'd walk down the hallway that fall and say you going to get your COVID vaccine? Did you get your COVID vaccine? Um, and uh, I mean it was put a lot of pressure push on people and uh, and so yeah that's. Uh, you know, when the COVID vaccines uh, rolled out at our place, I'll never forget, it was December of 2020. And I'd, I'd been on the job. I was, you know, program director at the clinic with the fellows. And I had uh, uh, separately uh, uh, my own clinic. And uh, I had rounding. I had morning report with the residents and things. And, and when the vaccine came, the, the, the young residents started taking the vaccine. And I said, oh, my Lord. And I started getting these texts. You're going to take your vaccine. We have your vaccine for you. I said, no, I said, I already had COVID. I'm not taking a vaccine. It's too late. And, huh. and the, still people were after me. And finally, yeah. one of the young fellows said, Dr. McCullough, you know, I don't feel comfortable with these vaccines. I said, you know, I'm, I'll, I'm, I can't tell you what to do, but I, for me, it's just, there's no way I've already had COVID. And these are, these are messenger RNAs are genetic. These are genetic right vaccines. I mean, you've never had foreign genetic code in your body. So he, he felt that it was wrong for him. And I thought that was really interesting. Um, and But very few people actually had that visceral response. I was amazed how so many people um, just basically just uh, said, okay, I'll take them. Yeah. I mean, this, this one was so, so many red flags with this one, though. And, and you think of it, it's how in the medical system, there, there is a sense of kind of preparation, you know, it's almost like a hazing, a grooming, I don't know what you want to call it, but you, you get your titles, your, ter- your tiaras, you get your, you, you get your white coat, your prestige, you get to go to the country club. And, and, and so, and you, and part of that training is that, you know, the vaccines are, you know, they're okay. And, mm-hmm. and I was in the same boat being in the military. I can't tell you, I mean, I had the anthrax vaccine. I had the, the swine flu vaccine. I had them all, you know, um, mm-hmm. and including the annual flu shot. I never thought twice about it, but this one was different. This one was, you know, a brand new technology MRNA and, and it was rushed. It, it didn't have the, 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 the data, the animal trials behind it to support its use. And, and so it was, I, that's the thing that still gets me is that despite the fact that we'd all been conditioned that all vaccines are okay, all vaccines are safe. It's the responsible thing to do for a, from a public health perspective that this one was by far and away different. <laughs> and that, I, that many I agree. People- I'll never forget we're at pathology conference and we're usually about 10 of us around and we have kind of our esteemed cardiac pathologist, William Robertson. One of the fellows was, you know, proudly saying he took the vaccine. I said, I said, you know, we don't know if this reverse transcribes. This actually may change your, your chromosome. And he was so convinced. No, no, no. But it doesn't get into the nucleus. It doesn't transcribe. Just, you know, like how did this young man know? These were brand new vaccines. It was the first week of the right. campaign. And yet people in their minds somewhat knew, you know, later on, uh, I want to say in the first uh, year of the vaccine program, I went on the Dr. Drew show, you know, that uh, handsome yep. silver, silver hair guy. And the same yep. thing, I, he goes, I mentioned reverse transcription. No, no, that can't happen. No, that's been ruled out. It's been ruled out. And sure enough, you know, the papers come in 
now there's a paper by Alden and I have one with um, uh, Kerry Gopoulos and St- Stephanie Senoff and Greg Knight, where we're certain this actually changes the, the DNA of a mosaic of cells. It does reverse transcribe. And I thought it was just so interesting how immediately and instinctively people were dismissive. Somehow they believe they knew something when they didn't. And right. it was the most interesting thing. The other experience I had is I was involved in a, in a protocol discussion. It was very early on. It was like maybe April of 2020. And I forget, they had an infectious disease doctor, one of the big University of California systems. And I had a patient I was struggling with. And uh, I mentioned uh, steroids. I just, you know, we were just small talking. And he goes, oh, I definitely wouldn't do that. And I thought to myself, how does he know so definitively not to use steroids? You know, right. like, like where's the open-mindedness? And it turned out steroids turned out to be a useful approach. I was a little bit late in the game. Other people figured it out early. But I was been so interested how people somehow in COVID, the human mind thinks that they just knew something was not going to happen. They didn't know what to do, but they knew right. not to use hydroxychloroquine. They used not to use ivermectin, not to use steroids. They didn't have an alternative, but they knew. It was just interesting. The one thing that people are very sure about is they knew to take the vaccine. It was so right. interesting. It's just right. from the very beginning. Listen, Brad, we're almost at the end of the hour. We're going to have to wrap it up, but tell us real quickly how you landed. This is an incredible story. I think you're so compelling when you're on stage. Tell our listeners where you landed. Uh, how can they visit you? How can they follow you? Yeah, um, so I, I've created a clinic. It's the Okoboji Wellness Clinic uh, in Okoboji, Iowa. So it's okobojiwellnessclinic.com. Um, our phone number is 712-339-6024. And uh, I've also got the Aeronautics Performance Clinic, and that's aeronauticsperformance.com, uh, aeronauticsperformance.com. And uh, that clinic, I've, I've, I'm together working with Dr. Fogarty that I learned about this NAC protocol um, mm-hmm. with in, in this part of the clinic. I, I will tell you that that. I think a lot of us that have kind of pulled back and are re-looking and re-educating ourselves on everything we've learned from soup to nuts, that's not just at medical training, but everything, uh, that's what we're doing right now. And the exciting part going forward is this integrative model, this wellness model um, that so many people are hungry for right now and not just always you know, going for the Band-Aid, the, the big pharma Band-Aid. I mean, there's a time and a place still for traditional Western medicine. We do some great things still, but a lot of other things we've found have been suppressed over the many years. And a lot of our alternative colleagues have known this for a while. And, you know, we in our arrogance have kind of poo-pooed it a little bit and said, yeah, that's woo-woo stuff. And there's a lot of stuff out there with, um, you know, the, in, in hyperbarics being a big one of them that in, in our integrative family wellness clinic, we're doing um, hyperbaric therapy for things as far ranging as, you know, and this is just 1.3 atmospheres, but and uh, which is like 10 feet underwater, you go into a pressurized setting or a tent and we're treating stuff like MS, um, recovery from stroke conditions, um, and a ton with COVID injury, vaccine injury, uh, COVID long haul. And so it's been so profound and exciting to, to see a broader, see, seeing outside of 
this box that's been created for us in as we've all gone through the medical training and to realize that all right there's there's more to learn still here and maybe some things to unlearn and to and to to figure to figure things out better but um that's the approach going forward i think you're going to see more mds and do's working with um functional medicine doctors chiropractors eastern medicine doctors um for this 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 integrative approach that uh includes hyperbaric medicine and you know just one quick story on a gal that came out to us from ohio last couple weeks ago and she had unfortunately gotten the covid vaccines and she developed pots she dizzy all the time rashes severe fatigue and brain fog so she'd been off to johns hopkins and she'd been off to you know her local primary care docs had the big workup and nobody was really offering any solutions for her and so she came out to to our clinic for a week and her husband did some uh some hunting and uh she did hyperbaric chambers twice a day and uh she got back to us this last week and said that after 10 hyperbaric treatments, um, 80% of her symptoms had, or she had had 80% improvement in her, in her symptom complex. Mm -hmm. And so, um, this is a significant thing. I think a lot of people out there are, um, grasping for straws and thinking, is this going to be my new quality of life, my new normal that have been vaccine injured or COVID long haul mm -hmm. spike protein injured. And, uh, anything we can do to support that immune system. There's a lot of different ways to support that immune system. Um, hyperbarics being one of them. And, but there's, there's just, this, the exciting thing right now is being outside of the grid um, to, to God has blessed us with a clinic and a great group of team members, uh, the local farm wives, wives from Northwest Iowa came and helped us paint and get the clinic together. And, and so it's really, I look at it as a as a wellness clinic for the community in Southwest Minnesota, Northwest Iowa, and uh, and so this is, I think, what we're going to see across the country and across the world is is folks are just so hungry for other alternatives right now. How uh, in they they feel like they've been lied to, taken advantage of um, by the government, by the medical system, and. Um, and so we have a lot of work to do to regain trust. I face the same thing. I've now I lost my second job actually since I've seen you. I um, mm. have been terminated from my big cardiology practice job. So oh. I'm going to be looking for alternatives. I agree. People are um, striking out in new directions. It's a brand new day. You're so inspirational. Boy, we've been talking to Dr. Brad Meyer, who is an unbelievable doctor in um in uh, the great state of Iowa. And we had a chance to meet at the Hold Strong meeting up there. Uh, well, listen, thank you so much for joining us today and keep up the great work out there. Uh, you're an inspiration to so many of us. God bless you. You've been a great inspiration as well. Stand strong. I will. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Loud Talk Radio. This is a McCullough Report.